Let's turn back to our study in Mark, Mark chapter 9. Uh, it's 844 in your pew Bible if you don't know the page. Uh, I also must share with you, I've had a couple people already um, uh, concerned for my, my well-being as I wear a, a suit jacket up here. And so I would say, thank you for your concern. It's not too bad at the moment, but if you do see me midway through the sermon make a, a wardrobe change, uh, I tried, but I, I couldn't do it. So anyways, uh, as of now, it's good. But Mark chapter 9, if you remember last week, uh, we wrapped up with Jesus foretelling his death and resurrection, um, which continues into today's message just a bit at the very end. We witnessed how B- Peter tried to rebuke Jesus for his foretelling of his death and get the statement from Jesus saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Nothing you ever want to hear Jesus say to you. And then Jesus goes forward and then calls to the crowd and reiterates their need of a Savior and their need of following Christ. And he reiterates his foretelling of his death and his resurrection sharing with him the outcome of those who despise and reject the teachings of Jesus. And so that's where we pick up this morning is in verse 1. It says, And he said, that being Jesus, he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with them Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. We're only going to get to verse 8 today, and technically we're only going to really hit on about seven verses, because verse 1 I'm not going to spend much, much time on. Uh, I can argue that this verse fits more with the previous section of Jesus foretelling his death and his resurrection. And I would love to spend time diving into this verse and, and bringing out exactly what it means. But uh, God put something else on my heart this morning. And so thankfully for us, this verse will come up in another 20 verses and then again in chapter 10 and then again in chapter 13. And so I think better done is going to be chapter 13 as we discuss the Olivet Discourse and discuss those things. We're going to be able to better represent this verse in a, in a more substantial way, even though I want to get into it this morning. So we're going to go ahead and go past verse 1, and who knows, maybe, you know, Lord willing, I'll get back to it in 13 if, if God has it, the plan go out that way. But we're going to move into verse 2. And in verse 2, we see six days after, which is six days after Jesus foretold his death and resurrection, Jesus takes Peter and James and John up to a high mountain by themselves. Here you have arguably those who are closest to Jesus, taken by Jesus to the mountain to witness 
what is about to happen. Now you may, may ask, why not all the disciples? Why is it just these three that are going up to the mountain with them? Well, it seems like Jesus would like to keep this moment private. In verse 9, Jesus charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man was risen from the dead. So instead of having all the disciples come forward with Jesus to this mountain, he instead chose the closest to be witnesses and to remain quiet until the time of Jesus' resurrection. So, what were James and John and Peter about to witness? What were they brought up there to witness? Well, continuing in verse 2, we see, And he, being Jesus, was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And so here we see why the disciples were led into this, this mountain, this time where Jesus is about to spend time with Elijah and Moses. They're about to witness his transfiguration. They're about to witness Jesus, not merely as a teacher, not merely as one who performs miracles, not merely as one who, who, who came just to, to be here on earth, but they're about to witness him as the son of God. Let this moment sink in for this time at this specific moment. You got to remember that these who were with him had been with him for a while now. They had seen him. They had begun to know him. They have, uh, even Peter has acknowledged him as the son of God. But here, at this specific moment, they're about to witness something that they hadn't seen yet before. In the Greek, this word for transfigured, what Jesus just went through, can also be said as a metamorphosis. Right? We understand that, that idea of a, a caterpillar slowly changing and, and molding into a, a butterfly. And so we understand the change in the nature. It's still a butterfly, it's still a caterpillar, it's still the same being, but it is now looks different than it did before. Here, Jesus was in his normal clothes. Jesus was exactly how the disciples recognized him. At this specific time, he's not wearing anything more than what I'm wearing right now. It's not any more special than what I'm wearing right now. However, as he transforms into his glorified state, his clothes that were just normal and plain looking became radiant and intensely white. And it says this white was beyond anything that man can do. It was beyond, it said, a person on earth could bleach them as white as these. There's no one that could bleach them as white as these clothes were. It was blinding. It was unearthly. It was not anything that man had seen with their eyes before. This was altogether different. And so you can imagine this white would be so blinding, so awe-inspiring that the disciples would be sitting there and be like, what is this moment in time? What is happening on this mountain? They were witnessing this transfiguration, this Jesus who was close to them, who spent time with them, who labored with them. And here they are witnessing him a glimpse into the glory of the Son of God. They get a glimpse into the second being of the Trinity. They get a glimpse into the one who is with the Father at creation. They get a glimpse of the Son of the Most High. What a moment in time for these disciples to see. It would be awe-inspiring. It would be terrifying. 
It would be perplexing. It would be wonderful. All the emotions wrapped in one. And yet at the same time, as the disciples were shocked and amazed and in awe and terrified, some alarm should be ringing in our head. We've seen this before in a similar fashion. It happened with one of the, the two that are with Jesus at this moment. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 33. We've gone here before, but Exodus chapter 33, most of you already know. This is where we see Moses in the cleft of the rock, and we see God pass by, and Moses gets to witness the back of God. But Exodus 33 beginning with verse 12, says this, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you do not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And then jump just a little bit over, 34, verses 5 to 9. Verse 5 says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the God, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the fourth and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if I have now found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. Here we see the glory of God is shown to Moses. We can see the parallels with Exodus here in Mark, the glory of God revealed to man. At one time, it was shown to Moses by the passing of God in that rock. Just seeing the back of God was enough to have Moses fall down prostrate and worship and glorify God. Here, God is going to make his glory manifest in a different appearance. Here we see God's glory is revealed in the outward appearance of his son. An appearance that is beaming with the radiance of his glory. 
You can imagine all the things that were said in Exodus, where he's sharing with them of who he is, his steadfast love, his abounding love, his abounding mercies. All those things are present and true of God's nature. And here in the transfiguration, we see those things manifest themselves in a bright, beaming light that is radiant off of Christ. And so I sit here and I talk about the glory of God. But as I share this with you, I would ask, what is the glory of God? We say statements like glorifying God, but do we really know what that means? If I were to ask you to define it, do you think you'd do a pretty good job of defining it? It's a little bit more complicated than describing a book, right? If I said to describe a book, you said, okay, it's, it's pages, numerous pages, and there are writings where we can gather information and learn, and it's usually leather-bound or bound by some kind of, of paper, and it's a thing that we can hold and we can use and we can use as a tool. And you can say, okay, that's a pretty good definition of a book. But if I ask you to, to define what is beauty, could you do so? It's a little bit harder. It's a little bit more exclusive. In the same way, as we see here, if I were to ask you to define the glory of God, it can be a difficult thing to wrap in a nice tight box. It's not an easy definition. God's glory is a nuanced and contains a myriad of different things. If we look in the Greek, the word for glory is translated to doxa. And doxa means honor or renown. It corresponds to the Old Testament Testament definition of glory, which is kabo, meaning heavy or weighty. Basically, both doxa and kabo are used to represent and express God's infinite, intrinsic worth. That's why it's not as easy as describing a book, because this is God's intrinsic worth, his substance, his essence, his being. What makes God God is glory. And so how do you describe that? Well, we have a couple ways in which God reveals himself to mankind through his glory. It is what we as creatures glorify in which God has revealed. The easiest representation of us would be God revealing his son to all of humanity. John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is this glory that is displayed, that is witnessed. It is God's holiness, what his being is. He is set apart. He is altogether different from us. And as that holiness is put on display, we are in witness of his glory. The outward display of his holiness, the public declaration of his holiness. Specifically here we get to see in his Son. And we see also, as Moses was able to catch a glimpse of the glory of God in that cleft, all mankind became witness to his glory by the arrival of his son here on earth. So at one moment in time, it was just sent to this one individual man, Moses. But no longer has God's glory been relegated to that moment. It is now shown for us by the sending of his son and by his nature. And so as we go forward, we see how is this put on display. Here we see Jesus being a living testimony of God's glory. By how? By his obedience, by the truth that's poured out of his mouth, by the power made manifest by miracles, by his acknowledgement of the Father. 
glory is brought to God. Hebrews 1.3 says this, He is a radiance of the glory of God, an exact imprint of his nature. 2 Corinthians 4.6, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. How? In the face of Jesus Christ. God can show his glory through his Son, our Savior, the Christ. It's our easiest representation to see what does God's glory look like? Go into the Word and see his Son. His son who he put on display, his son who was obedient, his son who did exactly what his father said, his son who lived a perfect life, who lived up to the standard of the law of what God said is right and just. Everything that is of God is Jesus, and so therefore it is a representation of his glory to mankind, and therefore we can look at Jesus and then glorify God, for we can see his glory on display. However, this isn't the only way that he's shown his glory. If you look in creation, Psalm 19.1 says, To the choir master, a psalm of David, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So just by the creation of the heavens and the skies above, we are witnesses of God's glory, of God's might, of God's power, of God's essence, of God's being. The fact that we have oceans that were made and formed and by God's hand, do you ever think of this, that they stop at a certain point in the sand without just flooding everything? They stop at a certain point, and God has them stop at that certain point. You can look through the forest and its dense vegetation, and you can see how it nourishes and replenishes the animals and the creatures that live there. You can look at the sun and the moon and the stars and witness God's tapestry. If you ever go at night into the desert and you look out into the, into the sky and you just look like you're in a dome and you see stars all about and, you, and you're just in awe of what that looks like. You're saying, oh my goodness, this is beautiful. This is amazing. It's a display of God's glory to mankind. The world and universe as a whole are on display to witness God's glory. Go to so many different books of the Bible and you get to see different ways in which God makes his glory manifest for mankind so that we can see it and then direct our glory to who it deserves to be directed to. But as we read this and as we see glory, how does one glorify God? We may know what Glory looks like representation of creation, of of his son. But how do we, as fallen, frail creatures, glorify the Almighty? Well, turn with me to John chapter 17. Again, if we are ever wondering of how we, we do things, of how we conduct ourselves before our Father... There's no better way than to go to Scripture. And we've been here, I think, a couple times now in the past month and a half, but it would be good for us to go here every Sunday, in my opinion. John 17, as we get to witness this interaction between Jesus and his Father. It says, When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life, to all whom you have given him. And this eternal life that they know you, you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. 
And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture may be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they may also be in us so that we may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have have given me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, and that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you, that you have sent me. I made them to know your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. It's a long section It's a lot of things in there, but how do we see Jesus glorify? He did what God had told him to do. As you go throughout there again and again, he he relays to the Father, I have done all that you've asked me. No one is lost except the son of destruction. I have kept them near. I have presented them the word. They believe in you. They they, they have come to, to, to understand that I am from you. Everything that you have sent me to do, I have done obediently, faithfully to you. And so what's most important here is Jesus acknowledged God for who he is. Not just by his praying, but by his faithful obedience and faithful witness of who God is to those around. By Jesus' life, you're able to witness the truths of God on display. It's the reason why we can go into the Gospels and we, we witness the truths of God through Jesus' teachings and parables and witness to those around him. Not a thing done by Jesus was done outside of the will of God. He fulfilled every duty that he was commanded to do. He glorified God in his obedience. Jesus lifted the name of the Father on high. And didn't forsake, he didn't abandon, he didn't go his own way, he didn't 
worship other idols. He didn't bring himself up in vain. He, fathered, he went, followed the Father's directions and was obedient. Also for us, I ask us to return to what was read earlier for us in Hebrews 12. In the first part of that section, um, we see the discipline of God on display. And in Hebrews 12, you get to witness God discipline his, his children, us, sons and daughters. And in fact, those who aren't disciplined are called illegitimate children. They aren't his. And why does he do so? Why does God discipline? So that we may share in his holiness, is what Hebrews 12 says. Discipline isn't for no reason. The discipline isn't because God thinks I, this, is, this is just whatever and it's just going to do anything. No, God has specific plans, specific reasons, specific ways. And when he disciplines, he disciplines that we may be more holy, that we may share in his holiness. God disciplines that we may root out what is sinful within us, all that was in opposition of God, so that we may look more like him to ensure that we are not unholy like Esau, but in fact that we are taken after our Heavenly Father in his likeness, striving for holiness, which in Hebrew says we are told without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Without the Holy Spirit changing us by the discipline of the Father, growing us in holiness, removing that which is vile and opposite of God, no one will see the Lord. If you look around and you see, well, okay, what is a practical application of this? One, I pray that your mind would go first to, why would I not want to draw near to my Father? If sin is an opposition of God, if sin is that which is rooted evil and bad and awful and detestable, then why would we not want to grow in holiness of what God says is right and just because we have a Father who loves us. If our, heavenly, if our earthly Father taught us certain ways and we admired Him, we look after Him, we said, I love you, I want, to, I want to be like you. I follow what you say, I follow what you have commanded me because I love you, because I want to be near you, because I don't want to be cast out. I don't want to be in opposition with you. That's the first and foremost. But secondly, if you go out into the world and people around say, hey, what do you believe in? Well, I'm a Christian. And they ask about the Bible and you share with them the truths and you share with them his law and you share with them, you know, how detestable and depraved we are as beings without the Holy Spirit. And then they say, I hear what you're saying. But I've watched you now for, for five months, for six months, for eight months. And all that you say, all that you say you hold fast to, you're different than all of those things. You, in fact, don't hold God's word very high. You're quite a hypocrite in what you say and what you do. You say you love God, and yet you do everything that it says is against him. What kind of a, a testimony are we to the world around us of God's glory? 
In fact, if we are disobedient from what God calls us to do, I would say that the glory that is represented is not a good picture of who God is. And so therefore, we're actually not glorifying God. We are despising God. We are bringing his name low because of our actions. We are bringing his name low because we decided to be disobedient. Just as Jesus lived a life that was meant to glorify God, to bring our attention to God, so that is ours. But so often we don't do it. So often we we fail. And we, understanding that we're weak and frail and sinful creatures, and maybe that's the, the problem. Maybe we don't view ourselves as that. Maybe we don't view ourselves as weak and frail. And maybe then we go out and we do stuff in our own strength. Because if we understand ourselves as weak and frail, then you realize there's not a thing that I can do that is outside the will of God. If I were to go forward, I would stumble, I would fail, I would fall. But we've been told again and again that is not our case. That is not what we've been given. We've been given the Spirit to witness of the transformation in us, recognizing to the people around us, this is not of me. I'm weak and frail, but God in his glory, but God in his mercy changed my heart, molded it to be like his, removed the scales from my eyes, and now I go forward proclaiming boldly of who Christ is, not in my own strength, but in his And so I guess, again, I would ask you are, you, are you understanding yourself to be weak and frail and sinful creatures? Or do you think you're okay? Because by that revelation, hearkening back to John 17, we see the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That's us. That they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Is that how you think of it? That the glory that was given to Christ has now been given to us. That should have a weightiness to it. That should have, as he was the Cabo, heavy, weighty, not walking around lightly, as those who are messengers of the gospel. And so we understand a little bit better this glory. It could be spent eternity trying to understand this. But as we understand just a a snippet of it, we go forward to verses 5 to 7. And we see in verses 5 to 7, after Elijah and Moses are there talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. Peter, in awe of what was transpiring, comes up with a suggestion. Peter, who is never short of words, comes up with a suggestion. He said, let us make three tents. 
One for you, Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and and let us just be here and, and stay on this mountain, and I don't need a tent. I'm fine. I'm content. I'm okay. But for you, let us just, this is a good thing that you three are here. Let us stay here a while. Let us camp here. Let us sleep here. Let us spend time. You can imagine his excitement and his zeal as he see this, that, this transpiring. I cannot believe what's happening here. I cannot believe that I'm witnessing this. I cannot believe that I'm a part of this. This is a good thing. Let's stay here a while. I can imagine for myself, I would ask the same questions. I want to be in fellowship. I want to be here. I want to, this is Moses and Elijah who I've read about. This is Jesus in his glorified state. There's, there's so many things that are racing in my mind. I want to stay here for a moment. It's hard for us to, to see anything wrong in a lot of times with Peter's response. You see, look at, look at the joy and look at the wanting of him wanting to spend time with Christ and Moses and Elijah. That's a good thing. He seems to be joyful. He's not even selfish in saying, I'll have a tent as well. He said, just, just three tents is fine. I understand where I am. However, it seems in Peter fashion, he was just saying the first thing that came to mind without actually considering it and thinking about it. And so we see that he was terrified, him and the disciples. And so Peter probably just stumbled out and said something quickly. I know because I do that often. And so you see that he just, oh, I'm so terrified. I'm so, ah, this is what I say. Let's have three tents. Not thinking about what just transpired six days ago. And we see Peter speaks his request and waits. However, before anyone is able to speak another sentence, we see God the Father draw near. And a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. I had mentioned in the intro that what Jesus had shared about his death and resurrection would be important again this morning, and here we get to see a little bit of that. Jesus had shared the necessity of his death, the necessity of his resurrection, and we see Peter back in that time saying, no, 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 Jesus, you won't, won't." he rebukes him, you won't die, that's that's not what you're going to do, and what is Jesus' response? Get behind me, Satan. This is God's plan of redemption for man, and not another thing shall be done to alter it. In Genesis, as we see this plan take forth, it's bringing it all the way to hear this transfiguration, and God knows what the next steps are. God knows exactly what's going to happen, and Peter says, but look at this, but this is a good thing, and this is not part of the plan. Jesus just shared what the plan was. And so you see the father come in with a loud voice. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. He has told you what needs to transpire. He has told you what is going to happen. He told you what needs to happen. Listen to him. We don't see Jesus, I mean, Peter necessarily for, you know, rebuking Jesus on this. But we do see him once again deviating from God's plan. Of course, Peter would want them all to stay by themselves on this mountain and enjoy the fruits of that. But it's not what Jesus was sent here to do. John 3.16, God gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's the reason why he came. But that's not what Peter wants. That cannot be done with Peter's suggestion. 
Peter was not thinking about God's will, but rather his own. Not thinking about what God desired for his people, but rather what Peter desired for himself. What Peter desired was not God's will. He wanted to, what seemed right in the moment to him. He made a rash decision, one that seemed right to him in that moment, and then went forward without any thinking of God's will, of what Christ had just shared six days ago. And so I ask you this morning, as Peter did what was right in his own eyes, did what pleased him, I ask you, why are you sitting in those pews this morning? Is it because you want to listen to me preach, because you like what I have to say, or maybe you don't like what I have to say and you want to listen to it and see what you can critique? Is it because you want to fellowship with, with those around you? Is it because you want to, you've come here for the past 20 years and this is what your Sunday routine is? You wake up, you go to church, you, you fellowship, you spend time together, and then you go home and then you rinse and repeat, and you rinse and repeat, and you rinse and repeat. Beloved, I would warn you, if it's anything else, if it's any of those things, rather than to come and praise and bring glory to the most high of gods, you're here for the wrong reasons. I'll be honest with you, I've heard those after Sunday services say, I don't really like the music today. It isn't what I'm feeling, it isn't what I necessarily like. It's why can't we do a little bit more contemporary music? I've heard those say, I don't really like the speaker's voice, or if he was too boring for me, or it was too long, or can't he just be a little bit more upbeat, or can he have some show, or can he do anything like that? I've honestly heard, I do not care for the aesthetics of the church. The aesthetics is distracting for me. I can't concentrate because the purple pews, poof. Fill in the blank. What is it that distracts you? What is it that you come in here saying, I don't like this, I don't like this, I don't like this, I don't like this? Or you come in saying, I want to listen to the music, I want to listen to the pastor, I want to have fellowship, I want to do this. You're not here for the music, you're not here for me, you're not here for the aesthetic, you're here for God. I want to make that abundantly clear this morning. It's not to say that we don't put effort into the sermons or the music or the fellowship, but those things are the fruit of coming here on a Sunday morning to worship and praise our God, to glorify his name, to come together in unison and say, this is our God, this is who he is, this is what I believe. And too often we come in here with a distorted view of a Sunday morning. And we leave out of here discouraged. We leave out of here with our heads downtrodden. Why would you leave downtrodden if you just spent time with the Most High God? You should treat this time with reverence. In Isaiah 6, 2-3, Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I want you to think about how you're acting in the pew right now. What's your mindset? What, what are you thinking? What is, what is going on? What kind of reverence are you bringing? Now imagine exactly what you're doing. 
And then imagine the Savior, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus, walks right up to here. Do you change? Do you sit up a little taller? Do you, do you bow down? Do you, do you say, oh my goodness, this is the Lord? I hope that you would fall down. I hope that we would proclaim as a seraphim, holy, holy, holy. And yet I have some news for you this morning. Each morning we come into this building gathered, singing praise, opening God's word, praying to our Father. Our attitude should be just the same. Because we are in the presence of God. We have come this morning to glorify his name, for we are his and he is ours, and he loved us. Treating each moment with a reverence for God, desiring to glorify his name in all we do, in the singing, and the opening of the word, of the announcements, of the fellowship. Each one would be a testimony of God's work in our life, and each one would be a testimony of who God is. And if someone came into this congregation for the first time and they were outside, they would say, wow, is this who God is? Someone came out on a Sunday morning, what do you think they would say today? I would ask you to examine your hearts on that. If you want to know the key to to accomplish this, to cause our, our gaze to be on Him, it's simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. Stop being so self-centered. We care about what's going to affect us. We care about what's going to make us feel something. We care about what's going to please us. We care about what's going to satisfy us. We care about what we want to hear on a Sunday. We care about what we want to see on a Sunday. It's not about you. Turn your focus to God. Come in here on a Sunday not to please yourself, but to please the Lord by your obedience. That is not to say we come in here just barely trugging in, saying, I don't know what to do. I just, Brent told me I, I, I have to be holy, so I have to just go down and just sit like this. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying if you're coming in here with just a lax and you're coming in here just saying, oh, well, just another Sunday. This is just what I do. I'm a Christian, so I come in. Change your heart in that. Have reverence for Sunday morning of being in worship of our Heavenly Father. We get so overwhelmed with emotions or feelings or depressions or anxieties or things that we think are so heavy and weighty. Cabo. You know what is Cabo? God's glory. That is heavy. That is weighty. Your feelings, your emotions, your depression, your anxiety are nothing. We need to stop wallowing in our own self-pity, saying, woe is me, there's nothing to be done. Woe is me. This anxiety, this depression, this sadness, it's too weighty. How little of God do we think when we think like that? What glory does that bring to the Most High? 
What glory does that bring to the Most High when you walk in on a Sunday and you say, oh, just can't do it. It's too weighty. I have to go find a, another thing to dampen my emotions. I have to go find another thing to try to satisfy this because, one, either the Lord is not doing it in my timing, what I think is right, or two, maybe he's never going to take this thing from me, so I have to find a way to do it myself. I want to be careful because I'm not standing up here this morning saying you, if you have anxiety or depression, that those are not real feelings or you are alone in that. They are real feelings. We're sinful creatures. We're weak. Things bother us. Things irk us. Things get under our skin. Things depress us. Things sadden us. Things give us joy. Things please us. What I'm saying is the moment you think that thing is weightier, heavier, of more substance, controlling your life more than who God is, then we have a real problem. Then we have a a fact where we have God's word and we are shown what he can do. We just witnessed him being the creator of the universe. We witnessed the fact that he's able to do so many great things. We witnessed that he sent his son to display the radiance of his glory. And we sit here on a Sunday and we acknowledge that God cannot do those things. When you say your anxiety and depression is weightier, is heavier than God, you just acknowledge that God cannot do those things. God is not as powerful as he says he is. God is not what he says he is in scripture. God is not, tell me, he told me not to be anxious, but guess what? Still anxious. He's not who he says he is. He's not strong enough to bring me through the trial. He's not strong enough to sustain me. He's not strong enough to do any things that he says. And by believing those things, you bring God low. Rather than what we're told is glorifying him for who he truly is. And that's the joy, beloved. It's not that we're going to go through no trials. It's not that if you believe in God, then your whole life is ease. In fact, it's quite often the opposite. You become aware of your sin, so therefore you are no more downtrodden. You say, I'm weaker vessel. I am, I'm a sinful creature. You go out and, and, and people die and, and people get sick and, and things happen and we, we get downtrodden. I'm not saying you believe God and things get easier. What I am saying is when things get hard, it gets easier to trust in a God who will sustain you, who will uphold you, who will be everything that you need. Once you recognize that you can't do it on your own, then comes the joy, realizing that I don't have to. Realizing that I have a God who said, here is my son for you. Did we pay our sins and transgressions? No, we didn't. We have a wonderful counselor who is able to sympathize with all that we're going through. And often we turn our backs. I would ask you, believe in him. It becomes easier in the dark moments. It becomes easier in the harder moments. I'll end with this. Our scripture reading from this morning, Hebrews 12, 25 to 29. 28 I want us to focus on, but read before. 
See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth. Much less will they escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This praise, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. And then 28, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. Let us offer God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. So let us be in awe and sing loudly and boldly of how great our God is, shall we? Let's sing.